If you'd like to join me in Mark 1 in your Bibles, we'll begin there, the continuation of a series that began many months ago, and um, at least for the foreseeable future, if the Lord gives more opportunities for me to speak, I'll try to continue that series in this book. As we consider the healing of the soul by the Son of Man, and we will try to take a, a look at that title at the end, just in brief, The Son of Man, uh, which is an important aspect of what we're talking about today. But in leading up to this passage that you heard read this morning, we, we considered last chapter 1, verses 16 through 34, where we saw Jesus there as the effectual caller, the authoritative teacher, and the compassionate healer. And we're going to continue on in that theme a little bit as he continues to show himself as a compassionate healer. Mark tells us at the beginning what Jesus' purpose was in coming at the beginning of his book in verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's very tempting for us to think of Jesus as a healer first, all the miracles that he performed, the things he did, and certainly that appeals to a crowd today, but that is not his purpose in coming. But in the passage that was read this morning, we notice that after a long day of healing, and you might recall this passage where uh, Jesus had gone in and healed Peter's mother-in-law and raised her up, and then they waited until after sunset, and I hope you recall that it was because it was on a Sabbath day, and the people were relatively faithful to the Sabbath, and so they waited until after sundown, and they brought many people to him, and he healed them all. And so it was a late night, a long time, and yet the next morning, Jesus is up very early while it was still dark, and he departed and goes out to a desolate place, and Mark says, there he prayed. Now, if you're an introvert like me, uh, you can imagine the night before would have been completely exhausting. Um, those of you who are extroverts, much like Carrie, are energized by people. And so the, the flow of people coming to that hospital room, she was probably ready to, to get up and party. Uh, I would have been exhausted. And those of you who are one kind or another, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We're not trying to psychoanalyze what Jesus' personality was, but just taking account of the exhaustion that would have come after that much time, regardless of whether you're introvert or extrovert. But he got up early because this was important, and he prayed. He, he needed somebody that could identify with him, that could sympathize and love and understand the things that he was going through, and there was nobody on earth that could really do that. And so he went to his father. But as the day broke, and Simon and those who were with him began to realize that he was gone. They went and searched, and who knows how long the search took. But eventually they found him, and presumably Jesus remained out there because he was praying for the entire time. And unless they followed footprints and had a tracker, they probably took them some bit of time to figure out exactly where to find Jesus. But when they got there, they said to him that everyone is looking for you. And it's interesting that in our day and age, you can imagine just one pop star and one tight end for a famous football team getting together as everybody's rage today. 
the fame is appealing to all of us. But Jesus just brushes it aside. He realized that his fame was carrying on because people wanted to be healed, and they were amazed. And, of course, you want to see what looks kind of like a sideshow. Some people crave fame until they've got it, and then they realize what a horrible thing it can be. And Jesus just brushes it aside and kind of goes back to that same thing that Mark tells us in 1, 14 and 15. In here he says, let us go to other towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. See, Jesus came to preach, not to heal the body. He didn't come for our prosperity or for our healing, our wellness, or any of these things. Those were incidental. The mission of Jesus was to, not that he was indifferent to the physical needs, but was to heal the soul. He came to confront, to convict, and to rescue the souls of men. And so throughout Galilee they went, and he was preaching in all of their synagogues and casting out demons. This was what Matthew talks about in chapter 12, where Jesus likens the casting out of demons to a man talking about the nation, where Perhaps idolatry or sin and other things had caused the, the affliction of demon possession to be rampant. And Jesus talks in Matthew about casting out a demon from a man, and then the demon wanders through dry places and eventually decides to get seven more that is worse than himself and go back and repossess the man, and he likens that to the nation. So here we see Jesus cleansing the nation, and when Jesus was there, he cast out demon after demon after demon. And he had some instructions for them when he did that we'll observe in a moment. But if you like outlines, and I don't pretend to be very good at them, let me give you three points here that we'll consider in this next session. As this man, this leper, comes to Jesus, first of all, I want you to see the condition of the man. And secondly, the compassion of Jesus. And then thirdly, the contradiction of gratitude. So it tells us that a leper came to him, imploring and kneeling and saying, if you will, you can make me clean. It's an odd scene. I think for a Western audience, it's hard in these modern days to imagine a group of people traveling down a road together, because we usually do it in cars or caravans if we're going as a group. We meet here coming from many different directions, some long, some short distances, but in this day, people would walk. They would walk together as a group, and Jesus and his disciples were probably traveling somewhere. Perhaps they were still where he was in the desolate place, but this man just comes out of nowhere, and he's a leper, and he just comes running up to Jesus or this group, and they're probably kind of astonished. You can just imagine the disciples who are stepping back and realizing just by one look what this man is. Now, leprosy was uh, a general characteristic of many, many diseases. Somebody has said 72. I don't know if that's true or not. But generally, what we think of as leprosy today was what we call Hansen's disease. And it's one where the nerves of the body begin to die, and it afflicts the skin initially and eventually the organs. But 
because of not being able to, to feel things, a person often injures themselves. In fact, many have been cut to the bone with, uh, with, with this Hansen's disease, this leprosy, and didn't even know it. Bleeding there, right, just bleeding out and having no idea that he even injured themselves. Uh, it's the opposite of a painful death. And leprosy would have been a death, but it would have, would have been one without any feeling whatsoever. You would have been able to go through life and not be able to feel a doorknob or, or um, be able to, to touch a, another human being without watching what you were doing because you couldn't feel it. Uh, eventually, this loss of feeling results in the deadening of the skin and the tissue begins to rot around it. And so people would lose fingers. They would merely have nubs, toes, make it difficult to walk. Their faces would begin to deteriorate and sink in. Oftentimes, a leper would lose the tip of his nose, and it would begin to go farther and further back. And it looks like a child born with a cleft palate, only much worse. It looks like somebody has been in a dreadful accident and been hit in the face with something that has just caved in their face. It's a horrible thing. Leviticus 13 and 14, the Lord spends two full chapters in Leviticus talking about how the nation was to deal with leprosy. But it was a death sentence. Uh, They were outcasts. Chapter 13 talks about what to do to determine and diagnose what a leper was. And chapter 14 tells you what he's to do if he's to be cleansed. Um, The leprous person, it says in, in verses 45 and 46, the leprous person who has the disease shall, he had to wear torn clothes. He had to let the hair of his head hang loose, so he was constantly unkempt. He had to cover his lip and his face so his mustache and beard would be covered. And he had to cry out everywhere he went, unclean, unclean, to warn anybody near him. He had to remain as long as he had the disease. He was unclean. He shall live alone, it says, and his dwelling shall be outside the camp. So there were terrible results. These three terrible results of, of leprosy was he was constantly unclean, never able to participate in the worship of the nation. He was to live alone in solitary confinement, if you will, and it had to be outside of the camp. And so with the exception of the company of other lepers, this man was left all alone. It would have been Probably unlikely that he was with anybody he cared for the company of, perhaps not friends or people he had known before, just people with the same affliction, like living in a cancer ward. And that's basically what it was. It was the cancer of the day. It was a death sentence. Alistair Begg observed that he was defined by his disease, and he was banished by the law, and his existence was a living death. But how did he find Jesus? How does a guy who has to shout unclean, unclean ever find a guy like that? You can't get on the internet and say, has anybody seen Jesus today? He had to wander around, but he had heard the fame of Jesus. He knew that he was healing people, apparently, we can assume. I think that's a fair assumption. And he went and found him. He searched everywhere until he found him and somehow or other recognized that this was the group, these were the people, and Jesus was there in the center And he comes to Jesus. He was persistent. And he comes and he says, if you will, you can make me clean. 
was not presumptuous, but he was desperate. Perhaps he had left behind family. We don't know how old the man was, whether he was married, but I can imagine that he could be a father, perhaps having married a wife and loved her very much, having fathered children and leaving them behind, had been cast out. Perhaps he had not seen his children up close for many weeks, months. Perhaps they had grown up without him and he was now a grandfather and perhaps couldn't even enjoy his grandchildren. We don't know. But these are all possibilities. And so the man is desperate and Jesus sees all of this and he understands the man's desperation and he sympathizes with the man's weakness. And the Bible tells us that he was moved with pity and stretched out his hand and touched him. This was an unusual thing because the rabbis taught that you were not to touch an unclean. If you touched an unclean, especially a a leprous person, you would become unclean. But we see that his faith brought him to Jesus And Jesus' compassion brought him back to the man. And he said, I will be clean. And I don't know if that touch was Jesus walking over and touching a hand, or if he put his hand on his shoulder. I'd like to think it was something better than a bro hug. But maybe Jesus walked over to him and put his arm around him. And brought him in close. The compassion of the Savior had no concern about the leprosy. He could do whatever he wanted. But he touched him. And so we should stop and consider how long had it been since this man had been touched by anyone other than another leper. How long had he gone without human touch? Sometimes... When my wife and I are sitting around, maybe watching a show or just talking, and she'll just reach out and touch my arm. And it's a special thing. The companionship and the love of a wife is unique. And I think to myself, that is just electric. And I don't mean that in any sort of untoward way, but it's therapeutic. My wife's touch is therapeutic. The human touch is therapeutic. Doctors and psychologists have talked about this for years, how the human touch is necessary even for introverts like me. And this man had not felt that for who knows how long. Weeks, months, maybe years. And Jesus gave him that gift back. He touched him and he healed him. How many times do... We enjoy the comfort of a friend's embrace. When our small group gets together, it's not uncommon for the guys to embrace one another and tell each other how much we appreciate each other. The love of friends. In this culture, the the greeting of a holy kiss. In this culture, the kiss would have been a normal greeting, like shaking hands in our culture. He would have been missing the touch of his children and wife all of this time. But because of Jesus' touch and his willingness, the compassion of the Son of Man, he was healed immediately 
and instantaneously the leprosy was gone. However far this disease had progressed, whether it had started to take fingers or facial features or affecting his internal organs, it was gone and the man was restored. It allowed the man not only to have his health, but to rejoin the community, to go back to the temple and the synagogue, to be with other people immediately. Now, something interesting happens here at this moment that Jesus gives the man some very specific instructions that would have been normal on one level, but we might think of as unusual on another. He sternly charges him and and sent him away, and he says, see that you say nothing to anyone, but show yourself to the priest. Well, of course, that's what the Levitical law required. Show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. So it's like Jesus looks at him and he says, now listen to me. Listen to me. Look at me. Look me in the face. I don't want you talking to anybody about this. I need you to be quiet. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? You're not to tell anybody except the priest. The law was given. Go give the sacrifice required and keep your mouth shut. Do we understand one another? Jesus very sternly told him not to speak to anybody about it. Some would say that perhaps in touching him that Jesus had broken the Levitical law and it was interesting that now he was telling him to keep the Levitical law. That's easy for me to say. But he tells him to go to the priest. Well, I shouldn't leave you hanging there. Let me just tell you that I think Jesus wasn't breaking the law by touching the man. See, the New Testament teaches us that the law of love is the fulfillment of the Torah. It is the fulfillment of the law of Moses. The law of love is not violating the law of Moses. Remember how Jesus went through and his disciples were able to eat grain on the Sabbath day, which some called harvesting. Jesus healed people on the Sabbath day and asked the question, is it good or evil to, do, to heal on the Sabbath day? And then he asked the question, how many of you, having your ox in a ditch, would not have compassion on your animal enough to go retrieve it on the Sabbath day? This is very much the same. Jesus touching the man and healing him was not a breaking of the law, but it was actually the very fulfillment of it. The law of love is there to fulfill, not to contradict the law of Moses. But he gives this man instructions, go to the priest, and he tells him what for. It was not just simply to fulfill the law of the sacrifice, but he says for a proof to them, or possibly against them, there's some translation question mark, and I think both make sense the um, religious leadership of the day was constantly dogging Jesus, and he was constantly showing them who he was. And so this man was given instructions to go to them as a proof to them. The healing of the body, again, 
was only incidental to Jesus' ministry. It wasn't a sideshow. He wasn't seeking fame. Miracles were to validate his actual purpose, which he had told us about in verse 38. He came to preach the gospel of the kingdom, the reconciliation of men to God the Father. It was a greater and a very unique and special purpose and task for this leper. He was supposed to be a testimony to or against them. And consider this for a moment. He's being sent to the priest, which I take to mean in Jerusalem, to offer a sacrifice, which was the only place where you were to offer sacrifices to God. And so he was being sent from the northern end of the country down to Jerusalem, where he would offer the sacrifice as a proof to the priesthood. Perhaps not the high priest himself, but eventually word getting to him that this man had been cleansed, not just cured, but cleansed of, lib- uh, of, of leprosy. This is very much like the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah spent so much time in Jerusalem crying out, and he's written an entire massive book of the things that took place in his ministry. And the people wouldn't hear, and the religious leadership wouldn't hear, And this man is being tasked very much like the prophet Jeremiah, being given a very specific thing to go cry out against the religious leadership who wanted a country but didn't want a savior. As I mentioned, the priesthood were always sending scribes, Pharisees, lawyers, and others to confront and trip up, keep tabs on Jesus. Here he sends an evangelist to them as a testimony to them. And the man having just been healed with all his joy booted it. He totally flubbed it. This could have been his greatest moment. His name could have been recorded in Scripture. He may have been listed as one of the prophets who was sent by Jesus to confront the religious leadership. And instead, we see here the contradiction of gratitude. He was excited, and and I get that. He's healed. So he tells somebody. And after he's told one person and, and already disobeyed Christ, the next person he tells becomes easier and easier, and the word gets around. But he went out and began to talk freely about it. Well, that begs the question here, and I, I love to look at these passages and just ask questions. Aren't we supposed to tell people about Jesus? Isn't that what an evangelist does? Isn't that what he said? Go and I have all authority in heaven and earth, so go and make disciples and baptize and tell people who I am? This is very specific. Jesus had commanded the demons to keep silent when he cast them out because they knew who he was. And for his own reasons, he said, No, you were to be quiet and come out. But when it came to this man, he left the man with his volition. Wanting his obedience, but not stopping his mouth as he had the demons. Well, the result was Jesus could no longer enter the towns. Because he went out and started blabbing, and we don't know if he ever made it to Jerusalem. We don't know if he ever gave the sacrifice. We don't know if he ever fulfilled the Levitical law of cleansing. But Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but was out in desolate places where he had been praying 
these unpopulated areas, and people were coming to him from every quarter. You know, perhaps in those towns where Jesus was planning to go while the leper was in Jerusalem, there may have been others who had other afflictions who couldn't go out to desolate places who needed a healing touch from Jesus too. But by the man's disobedience, his ministry was impeded. You could probably see the irony here that Jesus being banished now to desolate places, we might even call this a twist of fate, at the beginning of the story, the leper could not enter the towns, what was banished to the desolate places, and by the end of the story, it's Jesus who can't go to the towns. He's the one who's confined to the desolate places while the leper walks freely. And it doesn't take too much brain power to see a metaphor there for what Jesus did for us in his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Paul tells us that for our sake he was made to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. If you've believed in Christ, despite ongoing sin, if you love Him, you submit to Him, you've confessed, and you've become one of His, in spite of all of our infirmities, God calls us His righteousness. Theologically, what we're talking about is a concept that we call vicarious atonement. He suffered in my place so that I could be declared righteous and enjoy restored fellowship with the Father. And as his habit is to do, Mark leaves us hanging. He does this throughout his book, and even at the end, he doesn't seem to close the story. He doesn't offer a conclusion about the man's eternal state, just that people still came to Jesus from the towns. So there was some good, but the man has failed the purpose that God has given him. Well, from there, we turn to Mark 2. And again, if you like outlines, I am not very good at them, but I'll give you here, we'll see the definition of the man, followed by the diagnosis made by Jesus, and then eventually the discrediting of the scribes. So Jesus had left these desolate places, and eventually after going from town to town and desolate place to desolate place, I imagine, so that the surrounding towns could get to him, he goes back to Capernaum. After some days, it says it was reported that he was at home, which I take to mean probably the Peter Peter of home, the home of Peter and Andrew, or perhaps the home of James and John. It is often supposed by scholars, archaeologists, and other believers that know such things that Peter was his, Peter's home was his home base and that Peter and Andrew perhaps lived under the same roof. They would have had a home with few windows around the outside, if any, but inside would have been a court, courtyard where they would have had many places that could look inwardly and see the sunshine. This, was, this is, uh, uh, by many scholars, undoubtedly Peter's home by the sea in Capernaum, 
that is built this way, and the ruins have been uncovered. And so there would have been a place perhaps for his mother-in-law, a quarter for Andrew's family, a quarter for Peter, a quarter for others, and Jesus could have been staying in that one for others, and they would have been able to share this large home of the day. I assume that when they have gone back to home, as it tells us, that we're talking about the home of one of these disciples because Jesus himself had said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have their nests, but I don't have a place to lay my head at night. I don't have a place of my own. So if you're going to follow me, just understand this is the life you're committing to. And so I believe he was probably staying with Peter and Andrew under Peter's roof, and Peter had opened his home to him during that Galilean ministry. And it tells us on, it goes on to tell us that many were gathered, so much so that there was no more room in the house, and Jesus was preaching. He was preaching not just new things, but preaching the word to them. So he would have been looking at the Old Testament scriptures and preaching to them. We've seen many of the sermons, uh, those by the sea, the Beatitudes, other things. So we can imagine some of the things he was teaching. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Uh, they. They came bringing a paralytic. Who? Well, they. We don't know who they were. But you can imagine it could have been friends who loved the man for a long time and heard about Jesus' ministry. It could have been family who was just sick of caring for a paralytic. I mean, seriously, it really could have been any situation. Somebody who was like, man, if we could get this guy well, he can go to work and start to pull his own weight. But whoever they were, they were urgent to get him to Jesus, but they couldn't get near. So I look at this passage, and I have all these questions. I'm like, what's going on here? They, they get there, the, the, the door is filled, the room is filled, they can't even get to the door because there's so many people listening to Jesus. Many of them are scribes, apparently. So, you know, they figure, let's sit him down out here and we'll just kind of relax. I mean, he'll finish up eventually, maybe even camp here for the night and we can catch him in the morning. No, They were urgent. And and so these questions start rolling around in my mind. Why were they urgent? Um, They were so urgent that they they go upstairs and tear up the roof. I don't know if this is Peter's house or not, but, you know, can you just imagine? It's like, you going to fix that? I I mean, seriously. Um, You know, after Jesus healed... Peter's mother-in-law, you remember what happened. I mentioned it at the beginning. The people didn't even go to get healed until sunset because of the Levitical law regarding the Sabbath and the commandments. They didn't even want to walk that far, so they waited till sundown they came. So why with a paralytic, don't they just set him off to the side? Put him in the shade. Maybe he's used to it. But instead, they had an urgency. And again, Mark and even the rest of the Gospels don't tell us anything about the man's paralysis, but the urgency of his friends might offer some suppositions. You know, perhaps he was just injured. I mean, we know he was a paralytic, but we don't know what happened. I mean, he may have been working down the road, building something, three stories up, toppled off a ladder and become paralyzed right there, gasping for for air, 
can't breathe, paralyzed, conscious of what's going on. You know, this, this man, he may have been kicked by an ox. Maybe he was out planting a field and got kicked by an ox and knocked back and fallen and hit his head or severed his spinal cord somehow in the field, and the people just grabbed him and threw him on a stretcher and ran urgently to Jesus. I know somebody that can fix this. Let's go. Before he chokes out, we don't know. You know, is, is Jesus' response in forgiving his sin, is that a clue to what's going on? Was the man maybe injured that day in commission of a crime? Could he have been a thief that got caught breaking in and somebody banged him over the head and he became paralyzed? Could he have been caught as an adulterer by a jealous husband? We don't know. But the urgency of the men bringing him, as well as Jesus' response, should make us pause to consider what's going on here. You know, the other thing, other question I had is Mark doesn't tell us anything about but the homeowner's reaction. I mentioned his roof being removed. He may have been less than amical about the matter, but, you know, what are you going to do? You've got to be on your best behavior. Jesus is here. He's probably over there going, mm, observing all of this. I, for one, am curious about whether the roof leaked after this, whether the man and his friends came back to fix it properly. I mean, seriously, you just got healed. My roof is leaking. My daughter can't sleep because the roof keeps dripping on her. Can you please come back and fix the roof? These questions pester me. I don't know if any of these things bother any of you, but I read the scriptures and I think, man, I want more details. Even though we don't get the answer to those, we do get to see the reactions, number one, of Jesus, number two, of the scribes, and number three, of the crowd. I'll tell you, Jesus' reaction was pointed. Jesus saw their faith. Interesting, whoever they is. He saw their faith. It wasn't necessarily even the man's faith, although it may have included the man, we don't know. But interesting, he didn't say he saw his faith. He saw their faith. An observable faith is faith indeed. Um, faith is that which puts belief into action. See, even the demons believe but they don't have faith. And that should challenge us this morning because sometimes it's hard to take belief and make it faith. But the, these men had faith. And like the leper, they had confidence that Jesus could help the situation. And so here we see the diagnosis of Jesus. Jesus looks at him and he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus looks right past the affliction and sees the man's real need. See, the first man had come requesting temporal healing. If you will, you can make me clean. I want to be clean. Jesus didn't even give this guy an opportunity. He's like, no, I know what you need. And that's not it. Here's what you need. Here's what each and every one of us and every person ever to breathe 
needs forgiveness of sins. It is the deepest, most important, desperate need of humanity. You talk about your tense moments. Jesus looks at this guy coming down out of the ceiling. You know, I don't know. Maybe they didn't take him so they could let him down, laying down. They may have had to strap him to the thing, you know. He can't feel anything anyway. He's a paralytic. And lower him down vertically. I don't know. Probably not on his head, but maybe feet first so they didn't happen to open up as much of the roof. And, and here he comes, and, and, and they're, somehow or other they figured out where Jesus was in the room because it says that they lowered him down you know, where Jesus was. They didn't put him in the wrong place. And he forgives the man's sins. The scribes there in the room began thinking to one another, what in the world is he talking about? It says, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know, was Jesus' forgiveness of the man's sin just adding insult to injury? The man comes for healing and instead he gets his sins forgiven? There must have been some very strange looks around the room. Some might have even been inclined to go, no, 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 no. He just needs his body made to work again. He's not, hearing, he's not here to get, he, to get forgiveness of sins. You, you don't get it, Jesus. You see, Joel Osteen can fill an arena because he won't talk about sin. Jesus didn't concern himself with fundraising or popularity. He saw what the man needed. The scribes, of course, were not impressed. Now, I should stop here and say, now, Jesus isn't indifferent, as we saw, to the man's physical needs, but he just knew there was a higher priority. Whether his paralysis was the result of a sin or not, Jesus forgave it. And Job makes it very clear that not every injury and every physical affliction is the result of sin. It could have been. We just have no record here of the man even asking Jesus for forgiveness. All the text tells us here is that Jesus granted it. And although an argument from silence here, it agrees with the whole testimony of Scripture with the doctrine of election that teaches that God first raises a man to life and then grants him repentance and faith that he then exercises by virtue of his being brought to life. Only then, he told Nicodemus, could you see the kingdom of God. And in this case, Jesus forgives the man's sin, and then the man is able to stand and walk and resume his life. I know some of you in this room are wrestling with this doctrine of election, and I, and I commend you. I sincerely, I do, keep wrestling. Uh, we recently saw in, in, in Adam's series out of Acts that those of Berea were called more noble. And I, and I think the word there has a sense of being more thoughtful, more contemplative, more... Uh, they ruminated on these things. They wanted to really understand. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with eagerness, but 
They examined the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so if you're not quite there on the doctrine of election, but you're still willing to consider, I, I encourage you to keep reading the Scriptures. Believers, Presbyterian <laughs> believers, convinced me of the doctrine of, of election as a seminary student because they kept beating me about the head with Scripture. And so I have no fear of you examining the Scriptures to see if these things are so. There's everything right and nothing wrong with comparing the preaching and teaching from this pulpit with the testimony of the Scriptures and that of Jesus. Well, the scribe's reaction was indignant. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And really, their theology and their premise is not incorrect. Indeed, who can forgive sins other than God alone? It was their conclusion that erred. Instead of, number one, hearing his teaching with authority, unlike them, which the, the Gospels tell us that people marveled at Jesus' teaching because he taught with authority unlike the scribes. And instead of hearing his teaching with authority that they never, they, they never would give, seeing the miracle, number two, and then number three, concluding that he must be the Son of Man that he claims to be, they went into self-righteous mode. Jesus perceiving in the Spirit, constantly answering a question with a question. Doesn't it drive you crazy when somebody answers your question with a question? Jesus tied the religious leaders of his day in knots doing that. But here we see the discrediting of the scribes. When Jesus says, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? And to that, most of us in the West say, what? <laughs> What's... What's easier? What's that got to do with anything? And adding confusion to it is that commentators differ on what the statement of Jesus is making actually means. Which statement is easier? What difference does it make? Is something in that language hard to pronounce in one or the other? But here's what I think is going on. Jesus had baited these men into a confrontation deliberately to set up the miracle that he was about to, to do in order to demonstrate this title that he used, this one that we used in our affirmation of faith, Son of Man. He wanted to use that in that audience. <clears throat> if he says simply, rise, take up your bed, and walk, then the scribes will have a miracle to wrestle with in contemplating who Jesus is. But they can then resort to trying to discredit him like they did when he cast out demons, saying, well, he does that by the power of the devil. But if Jesus simply says, your sins are forgiven, then they know he's a blasphemer, and they can't see anything that's happened, because who's going to prove it one way or the other? Unless he has the power to heal the man of the paralysis after his so-called blasphemy. In which case, he really is the Son of Man, the incarnate God with all authority in heaven and earth. And at that, he really puts it 
in the scribes' faces. But that you may know, he says, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. And he did. So the matter isn't really about which statement is easier, but the order of importance, I think. The man's primary need, his eternal need, was the forgiveness of sins. Paralysis ends at death. Whatever affliction we may have here ends at death. Jesus took care of his eternity before dealing with his infirmity. And the crowd's reaction was amazement. It says they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. But some there just might have thought to themselves, wait, he called himself son of man. Where do I know that from? Perhaps somebody at the synagogue had mentioned the book of Daniel recently. So if you'd like to turn to Daniel chapter 7, I want you to see what's going on here. We'll look at Daniel 7, 13 in a moment, but let us consider this somewhat mysterious title that Jesus uses of himself, Son of Man. I've heard it said, and I'm taking it at face value, that the most used title for Jesus in the New Testament is Christ. Second is Lord. Third is Son of Man. But by far, the most used by Jesus to refer to himself is Son of Man. So you'll see here that it comes from Daniel chapter 7. We won't read much of it. In this vision that Daniel receives, he sees four beasts representing four successive kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. But it gets really interesting when he sees thrones being placed. He sees thrones being placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And a court sat in judgment. And books were opened. And the last beast, Rome, was vanquished. And then we read this in verse 13. I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Notice that he came in clouds to the Ancient of Days, not to the earth. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the Son of Man. And so with gratitude to R.C. Sproul for the following. The Son of Man is a heavenly being appointed by the Ancient of Days to be the judge of the earth, to whom the Ancient of Days gives the kingdom forever, who descends from heaven and then ascends into heaven, to whom God will give the earth. And when the Son of Man says, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. Surely we can see something of ourselves in each one of the players in these stories that we've seen today. Perhaps as someone in the crowd, 
the audience watching what Jesus does and being amazed at the things that he does, and we should be like that. We're in a brave moment. We might see the Holy Spirit working in us and see Jesus in us, his image stamped upon us as we give the truth to those who need to hear it, even at our own peril, even with people thinking poorly of us. You know, at times we might be the self-righteous scribes that wouldn't consider all the possible options, but instead have their minds made up, didn't want to be confused, confused about the facts. We look at something in Scripture and we try to rationalize it away as not really meaning that. It's okay. I can be just as good as that differently. Maybe too often like the leper who want prosperity and a happy home and physical healing and physical health, but we won't obey and we end up hindering the ministry. The ministry of reconciliation is hindered by our disobedience. But most importantly, I hope for everyone here that you're the paralytic. I hope that you are the one who had no life to look forward to and no eternity to look forward to, but who in God's first act of salvation was forgiven by Jesus, the Son of Man, and as a result repented and believed unto salvation. So in closing, let me just remind us all that Jesus came preaching. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Not because he was pretending to be holier than thou, to those who heard him. He came because he's the son of man. He came because he's been given a kingdom by the ancient of days. He has dominion and glory, and this kingdom will never end so that all people should serve him. His kingdom is everlasting. It shall never be destroyed. Worship him. Let's pray. Father, we praise the Son of Man today. We're grateful for His salvation, His sacrifice, His life, His death, for putting up with humanity, both then and now, for the mercy and the grace that He's shown. We're grateful to Jesus for the way that You came and tolerated creation who doubted You, merely requiring that we believe and express faith and repentance. Oh, Lord, be pleased with us today. Help us to live repentant lives this coming week. In the name of Jesus, the Son of Man, I pray. Amen.